Kia Koto Whanau. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation. Hope you're doing well. Uh, good to be with you again as we record this. It is the day after uh, the election in America and a crazier time there has not been in politics. If you're someone who is uh, following this podcast for a while or following us on social medias, you'll know that pretty much what happened is what we've been saying would have happened, which was the president will possibly be ahead on election night, will certainly be showing strong, and then Joe Biden will start to overtake as those mail-in votes come in. Uh, for a long time we've been saying the only way that Trump would win this is if he involved the courts, and as we record this uh, of recent news, Trump is talking about going to the Supreme Court. It is just a crazy, crazy time. Who knows what is going to happen? But it would appear from sitting right here right now that it's, uh, let's say, 90% chance that Joe Biden will be the president of the United States of America. And then can I just say, God help you, America, for the next three months. For those who don't know, uh, Donald Trump still stays in the White House and he stays in the White House until the third week of January. So that's pretty much all of November, all of December and most of January to cause mayhem, to sow division and to line his own pockets, shall we say. Oh my goodness. So, one of the things we want to do today is have a bit of a diversion away from politics. He is a legendary broadcaster in New Zealand. He is known probably best for being a rugby commentator, but he has commentated many, many different sports. He's been involved with 10 Olympic Games, 10 Commonwealth Games. He is the writer of a, an excess of 15 books. I believe he said 20 books during the podcast. He's sort of, I don't know, he kind of feels like everybody's uncle. Everybody's uncle, Keith Quinn. Keith Quinn joined us. We had a, a great old chat about life, the universe and everything. All sorts of sporting stories in there as well. Enjoy your time, as I did, with Keith Quinn. I believe that means we are live as I look to my little computer and I look at my screen and I say good morning and welcome Keith Quinn. <laughs> That's very kind of you, Pat. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be with you, Mr. Quinn. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, don't call me Mr. Quinn. That's the first rule. Okay. Uh, Mr. Quinn was was my father and my grandfather. I'm Keith. So there you go. Well, was your was your dad and your granddad uh, like sporting mad like you? Were they into? Was that like a lead in for you to get into what you get got into? That's something that I would never even have the thought to ask you. What did your dad do? What did your granddad do? Uh, yes, they were very much into sport, but they were hardworking people as well. My uh, forebears on that side of the family, the Quinns, came from Canada. Oh. They came from uh, Vancouver Island, from a town called Nanaimo, which is uh, very famous these days for uh, the singer Diana Crawl and uh, the Nanaimo Hornets rugby team. And, uh, and they came to New Zealand looking for opportunities in the coal mining business on the west coast of the South Island. Uh, my grandfather, John Quinn, was a very strong, uh, uh, tough uh, boss, and uh, he was uh, um, he wore a 10-gallon hat around the streets uh, in the town of Blackball on the West Coast, mm -hmm. and so he had the nickname of Big Sir, and he was brought out by the, I, I assume, the New Zealand government to, to, to be the strike breakers, uh, be, um, to break the strikers in Blackball where the Labour Party was formed. <clears throat> and um, 
but he was a uh, as befitting his um, North American sporting background. He loved the game of softball. All right. And he introduced uh, softball uh, to New Zealand. In fact, um, uh, we the family has always believed that the game of softball started with our family with uh, Granddad. Uh, bringing it into the coal miners in Blackpool. And we've got some f- family photos of that happening. And um, uh, so they played in Blackpool. And um, uh, then my uh, his son, Harry Quinn Sr., my father, he became a, a mine manager and uh, was the manager of the Bennydale State Coal Mine in the King Country. And he built the first uh, North American softball diamond in New Zealand, which is made out of crushed and bleached and dried pumice from the hills around Bennydale. And it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful uh, photograph we have also of the Bennydale uh, diamonds, the softball diamond. And the, my first sporting heroes, the Bennydale Tigers softball team played on there. And teams from all over the North Island would come and want to play on the softball diamond in Bennydale. So from that background, uh, sports was talked about. My dad... Uh, pitched, uh, taught my mother, who was a Scot, to pitch. So she pitched for King Country. My mother was a, a, a top croquet player as well in the King Country and then later in Wellington. Uh, and my dad played uh, this game, which was introduced to him in New Zealand, called rugby. And he was a tall, <laughs> slim man. And in Bennydale, which was possibly not the same as uh, Eden Park or Twickenham, but in Bennydale, he was known as the king of the lineouts. So uh, so we talked sports all the time. One of my favourite stories is when he came home from working in the mine in Bennydale. Uh, there was always time for five minutes each way with his sons on the backyard before we all rushed inside for dinner. And, um, and in, those, uh, in those games, uh, he would commentate. His, his, we, there were five boys in the family. He would commentate us trying to beat him at rugby and somehow... He could reach out and control the game with his long arms, and uh, and so every game amazingly finished in a draw. But he <laughs> he uh, he was able to commentate the games, and then over the dinner table, I have this memory of him summarising uh, in uh, an imitation of Winston McCarthy's voice, the great commentator of the time. And so all of this was instilled in me from an early age. And when my dad died at a very young age, I think. The things that he instilled into me from the very short time I knew him became part of my expression and hopes for um, emulating what he meant to me. So um, that's that's my sporting background. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and, and it was in was in right from the start. One of the things we often find here in in this wee thing we do is sometimes we talk to people about things they didn't don't normally talk about in public, not because they hide it, but because you know if you're a comedian, you're known for comedy, maybe not so much your, your political views, etc., etc., etc. Who knew that the very first question, Keith, uh, would be the Quinn family are responsible for softball in New Zealand? Holy moly, is it? That's a bombshell. You should be the what do they call it when they have someone? It's the the patron. You should be the patron of New Zealand softball, shouldn't you? Uh, I, I, I doubt it, but I played it for a while and, and actually commentated the World Women's Softball Final uh, in Auckland once, and uh, and uh, they introduced me as like that, and uh, I was most embarrassed because my knowledge of softball by then wasn't uh, wasn't great. But yeah, softball was very significant. Not so long ago, 
uh, a friend of mine with a film company asked me to do the voiceovers and um, do the introductions for 50 years or longer of the history of Auckland softball. So I was very uh, pleased to do that and th in fact thrilled to be asked to, to be the front man for it. And we went up to the Auckland uh, softball offices uh, in Auckland and they um, said there's a whole lot of old pictures in the um, in the room there. Go and have a look at those, see if any of them are relevant for the history of uh, Auckland softball. And a big picture was pulled out of a game in 1949 between Auckland and King Country at Blandford Park, which is uh, no longer in existence now. It's been run over by a motorway. And there were the two teams lined up like they did in softball photos that they one team on one side one team on the on the other and the, the coaches in the middle and i looked closely and my god there was my dad standing there uh, <laughs> as coach of the king country team and uh pat my dad has been dead since 1954 wow so this was a, a, a it was a great moment for me of uh of emotion i can tell you it's interesting how much new zealand's taken hold of uh softball in general my mum played softball uh, I think she played third base mm -hmm. for Ramblers. I think it was Ramblers, an Auckland Thank team back in the yeah, day. Yeah. So there you go. Hey, um, we, I, you probably don't know. I don't. Maybe you do. Maybe we've talked about this in the past. But there's always a connection in you, in my family to you, and that is, mm. um, I, be oh, I, know there is. I believe your first broadcast was 1973 in Park. This is the story. At least tell me if it's wrong. And the reason there's mm -hmm. always a connection there is my dad, who uh, was a rugby referee. I guess you'd still say probably still is. He's not actively, obviously, refereeing, but he's still part of the... I remember him well, Bead. Yeah, I yeah. remember him. Yeah, he, he refereed the curtain raiser of the test yes. match that was your first broadcast. And you know how sometimes oh, yeah. we have those kind of quote-unquote claims to fame? It's always been something that's been mentioned in our family that, you know, when Keith Quinn's name came up, it's like, oh, now I have a connection to Keith. So, yeah. it's, it's, it's great. Well... Well, I remember your, your daddy was a very good referee. Uh, I remember he had a, he has a problem with one arm, hasn't he? Yeah, he got polio in the 1948 yeah. polio epidemic. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if problem was the right word there, mate, because he rose to be a very fine, a bit like Murray Helburn, uh, he, who has a slight, uh, uh, well, is it a problem? I don't know, with, with, with one arm, and but rose to be a top sports person. And I remember your dad well because... Um, uh, we had a connection. We were both friends with a guy called Blair Wingfield. Okay. And uh, Blair was a friend of, of your dad's and and, and just re remains a friend of mine to this day, by the way. And we talk often about rugby and refereeing because Blair was a referee as well and a referee with your dad. And I can remember a couple of times that uh, my shortcomings as a commentator and understanding the detail of the rugby uh, law, I would bring up Blair who was often acted as my statistician in the commentary box, and he would say, "Yeah, let me just check with Bede about that." Oh, really? And uh, or else <laughs> I'd see I'd see Bede and I'd say, "Hey, listen, man, Law 14 about who gets the put in if the defending team's knocked on in the in goal area, something complicated." Um, he he, those guys helped me a lot. So I remember your dad very fondly. And we, I remember also that he used to he used to collect golf balls. Didn't yeah. He? You know, we had a, he, he was, oh, I was going to say OCD, whatever the correct word is for a bit mad about uh, collecting <laughs> golf balls. And we had a, a batch in Mungify Heads in Northland, um, which was the first place I met you face to face. I was a teenager and you came and did, uh, I think it was an opening speech at the Mungify Golf Course um, 
as, as like you their guest speaker. You didn't have the beard then, mate. Or the, uh, or, or the grey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he had, God, I don't know, there was these shelves that I think he got built on purpose. Like he would have spent hundreds of dollars on these shelves and they would have been oh, maybe to my chest or so maybe five foot high. And so there would have mm-hmm. been about six or seven of them. They would have been about probably two metres wide. And I think he had about four of them. And they were filled with golf balls from all over the world. We always thought that, you know, if and when he passed away, and I, he might be watching this, so I should be careful, that if we still had that Mungify bat, which was on the water, we'd do like a 21-gun golf ball salute off the front off the front lawn into the water. Um, off the deck. <laughs> yeah. But since then, um, their, their mum passed away a couple of years ago, and, and mum and dad were living in a retirement complex, uh, and, you know, you have to downsize. So they know. I don't actually know what happened to them. I'm bloody glad I didn't get offered them because I would have had to say no very politely. Um, but who knows? I don't, don't literally actually know what happened to them, but they certainly don't have them anymore. Well, well, I remember they were. Everyone was beautifully cleaned, polished, <laughs> and the, the label on the golf ball from a particular clubhouse or business or or brand was up pointing so that when you looked at the shelf, you could see which exactly quickly which. Uh, golf ball represented which company or whatever but i think i also have a funny memory that some of them were set in a in a cabinet on the like a uh, on the ground ground level you could put your afternoon tea on it and they were under glass am i right you, you almost got a no? better, better memory than i yeah you're probably right look i mean I, yeah, I, yeah. I think you're now getting into my repressed memories of childhoods being surrounded by <laughs> golf balls perhaps but i do remember one instance i had a um, my uncle michael who was uh, my dad's sister's husband? Um, we were having dinner at a house, and these some of these golf balls were in the house as well. They were freaking everywhere, um, and no one had noticed. But Uncle Michael had disappeared for probably an hour from the family dinner, and then it, and then he, he slipped back, and the conversation went on. And then it was time to leave, and they upped and left, and we went out to the front door. And I don't know how long it was. I was a kid. You exaggerate things. But it felt like there was a 30-meter line of every single one of these golf balls taken off the shelves in a single line around the lounge, down the stairs, in the foyer, back up the stairs. And he just, he'd taken all of them off the shelves and made a line with them all through the house. The kind of thing that we all laughed at, and I think Dad did too, but secretly perhaps the OCD can in I, them. Can not- I tell you my only other golf ball story? Sure. We, uh, we too have a, uh, a batch a house at the beach. Ours is at Riversdale Beach on the Wairarapa coast, and it's uh, the back the back of it backs onto the Riversdale Beach Golf Club, which is a lovely nine-hole golf course. Uh, and uh, I think we're on about hold back onto holes the sixth. Anyway, when the prevailing wind is coming off the land onto the heading towards the ocean, um, and there's golf being played Monday to Saturday, Monday to Sunday. Uh, we sometimes turn up on the weekend and there's four or five golf balls on the back lawn. So <laughs> I always pick them up. Nobody's come over the fence to, to, to get them. Uh, so I always pick them up and I put them in a jar, which is a big jar. And when it gets last summer, when it got full, I emptied them and took them around to the uh, surf life saving clubs, uh, bringing uh, fundraising dinner and somebody bought them uh, for a um, hundred dollars or something. So, um, so this year I've started collecting again in this very big jar and I'm half full already. So I reckon by the end of the year, there'll be another donation of uh, golf balls picked up off the back lawn at the Quinn's place at Riversdale beach 
for donations and the money raised will go to this local surf life saving club. Nice. But the horror the horror story from Riversdale Beach, while I think about it, is a guy further along who had the same uh, thing happening with people hitting miss hitting golf balls onto his back lawn. And he would and he was a golfer. And he would pick them up and over the course of a few months he'd go down to the beach, tee them up and hit them into the sea. And I remember thinking, Oh, what a horror story that is. To hit them into the sea because it's probably not doing the oceans any good, a waste of a golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also maybe the Beach Surf Life Seven Club could have got some funds if he'd thought about the same thing. But it sounds like you've got a saving... about conversation about golf balls. It sounds like you've got a, a saving schemes going on, people donating golf golf balls for your uh, to save up to sell at the end of every year. It's fantastic. Hey, um, Keith, I'm. I, you know I have to play this, and if I talked to you and didn't play this, uh, the world would uh, be very, very grumpy with me. Um, your, uh, I don't want to say it's your, obviously your, your, your best highlight, your, you know, but it's probably the one thing that when people think about Keith Quinn, they think about this instance from the Rugby right World Cup. He's got the bounce. He's handing it off his opposite. Lamu. It's, the, it's one yeah. of those pieces of commentary that's like the uh, Montgomery, uh, America's Cup is New Zealand's Cup. There's some things that just that just stick in our, uh, oh, uh, like in to, our history. I like, a, I like to give it a bigger status than that, Pat. What about, what about one small step for man, <laughs> one giant leap for mankind? <laughs> but I've, Actually, I've, you're, the, you're, the only person that, you're the first person that's mentioned that commentary to me today. Oh yeah, so that's good. <laughs> but it must have been. Um, I know. I, I, it's. I, we don't need you to tell the story again. I know you've told the story about how you were. You know, you had the words to say, but it was such an amazing event. You basically lost your words. But there's. It's. It, what does it feel like having that being associated with you so strongly? Uh, well, it's been very nice. In in in, in fact, um, and now as the years go by. Here we are in 2020, and that game was done, played in 1995. So that's 25 years ago, and you've just played me a piece of uh, video there, which is about 20 seconds long, that, and that's all. Um, now, I'm really sort of chuffed that it's lasted that long. I could say if I was a different type of person, uh, is that all you've got to say about my body of work <laughs> and my long and illustrious career? But I'm. Don't get me wrong. I'm. I'm. Uh, I. I. I'm pleased that it's still around. It. It actually. When I mentioned the one giant step for mankind, one etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that quote. It was based on that kind of thinking. Um, I'm sure Neil Armstrong didn't think about that line when he was going down the ladder to to land on the moon. He pre-prepared the line, didn't he? And, uh, and he. And he, so, and he got it wrong. The, the line he pre-prepared was not the line he said. He made a mistake. The line he had pre-prepared was one small step for a man. That's what he was going to ah. say, a one giant leap for yeah. mankind. But he stuffed it up. But it still works. But the actual oh, pre-prepared yeah. line he had was not what he said. Well, that was the same principle. When I was about to do that game, Lomu had been such a force in that World Cup, 20 years of age. No one had never heard of him before we got there to do that World Cup. And um, I thought... Right, this is the biggest game of the World Cup so far, the semi-final. Uh, New Zealand's got a great team. Lom is the game of his life, 20-year-old. He's going to do something. So I thought, um, I better prepare something for him. 
and uh, I had this one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind kind of comment uh, written on a piece of paper because I'd thought about it before. Um, and uh, when I went to, when he got the ball in that instant, wide to Lamu, he's got the bounce. I went looking for my quote because I could somehow <laughs> see that he was going to push off the skinny white English defences and uh, power over for a try. But that flicked off and went onto the ground. And then when I was looking for it in the instant, that's when I said, oh, oh, trying to find it to pick it up. And so that's when I did the quote wrong, um, just as Neil Armstrong did. But what a what a massive big head I am to compare myself with, with Neil Armstrong. But it's the same principle. Martin Crowe, the great cricketer, um, he talked to me once about visualisation beforehand. And I kind of believed in it in commentary. It's like thinking about headlines before the game unfolds. And um, uh, Martin told me that he scored a century at Lord's uh, in a cricket test in the garage in Queenstown. That is oh, when he wow. lived in, yeah. He faced every ball uh, with his car here and the wall here. And he had gloves on and holding a bat. And he played all the shots. He let balls go outside the off stump as he visualized the guys coming in and what they were bowling to him. And he made a century and his wife came in uh, at the end when he would, had reached a hundred and he was covered in perspiration. And she said, what the hell are you doing? He said, I've just made a century. I had lords. But in fact, he just made it by visualization. Uh, and of course, later he, did make a century Lord. So um, uh, visualization, there's a lot to, to, um, I remember I got it first, the idea first from a great cartoonist on Saturday nights in Wellington called Neville Lodge, who uh, used to have a full size cartoon on Saturday night's paper, which came out at about six o'clock in the evenings. And so after the big test matches finished uh, at six of about four, the production would go into, um, um, planning for the evening edition of the Sports Post, and they would take Neville Lodge's appropriate cartoon for an all-black win, an all-black loss, or a draw. And he would draw them all on the Friday before the test match was played. Wow. So he had everything covered for the result. All the people who were in producing the paper needed to know was to hear the commentators on the radio say, and that's the final whistle, and New Zealand have won the second test against the Springboks. They would take that cartoon and set it, and it would be on the streets at 6 o'clock because he'd pre-planned it. But he'd also pre-planned one for the All Blacks losing and the draw, a match drawn. So that's called visualisation. So I suppose when I'm thinking about the Jonah Lomu try and the Neil Armstrong try and the Martin Crow century, uh, that's people visualising beforehand um, <laughs> their, their task that was upcoming. Do I make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also the first time I've ever thought this, like ever connected it, that those two sporting greats, like giants in their field, also left us far too early. I never can, I mean, obviously Crow was a bit older and Jonah was far too young, but there's, not that it's connected in any way other than you've mentioned them side by side and it just makes me think they're two people that, that died far too young as well, which is kind of a, a sad thing. I was also thinking how how mad you have to have an element of madness or kookiness or something a bit weird about you to be a 
a, a top, top, top sports athlete. I mean, you look at the Jordan documentary that came out earlier this this year, showing yeah. what a he wasn't. He's not a narcissist, but that competitive nature he had it made because I'm a Jordan fan. That's where I was playing basketball in the nineties. Um, I, I came away from that respecting him more as a player and thinking I would never want to be your friend. You know, and and previously to that documentary, it was like, oh, imagine being Michael Jordan's friend. It was kind of a nice thought, but I wouldn't yeah. want to be within twenty foot of him in a social setting um but respecting him as a player martin crow that sounds mad coming out and visualizing well, but it, but it worked for him it, it did what it needed to do martin crow uh died aged uh, 52 i think mm. uh, and he became a very big part of my life over in the last five or six years of his life i had i hardly knew martin crow at all until one day i was sitting at home and the phone rang and martin or Mar, called himself marty yeah, Marty Crow. He said, uh, "Why aren't you commentating rugby?" I said, "Well, I've, I'm kind of working for the wrong channel now. TV New Zealand doesn't have the rugby coverage. It's all on your channel over at Sky." And he said, "Well, I'm, I'm just been uh, made the producer of the uh, Sky Rugby Channel, and we're going to do college rugby, secondary schools rugby." And uh, he said, "I want you to commentate for me. What? Why aren't you commentating rugby?" And I said, "Well, nobody's asked me." <laughs> so that was a, in 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 essence the commentary. So uh, conversation. So um, I went to work for Sky Rugby Channel, commentating the early stages uh, with some other guys, of course, um, of this what is now very familiar um, Land Rover First Fifteen Rugby. Yeah, and it was fantastic fun. And I discovered with Martin Crow as the producer, this great cricketer that he was a fantastic rugby producer as well. Because, and the main thing was, by then I'd commentated rugby for 40 years and with the greatest respect to the guys that I'd also worked with, nobody had criticised my work week by week by week. <laughs> nobody had commented on it. Um, they just said, uh, okay, that was the first test, Keith, here's your plane ticket for the second test next Friday, uh, off you go, and uh, uh, let's hope the All Black forwards play well and we win the game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nobody actually said, "Hey, Keith, I thought you used um, far too much uh, uh, shouting in, uh, in the first half and uh, left you with nowhere to shout about it late in the game, etc." But Martin Crow did. I would uh, I would do a game on Saturday, and on either Sunday night or Monday morning, there'd be an email. From Martin, uh, dear, uh, dear, um, what did he call me? He had a particular name for me, Quinster, I think it was. <laughs> and he'd say, dear Quinster, watch the game. I'd say, a good game. Uh, St. Kentigan, lucky to get by in the end. But now, about your commentary. Did you realise you used the word uh, sensational four times in the, la in the first uh, 10 minutes? That meant that at the end when it was really close and the guy got the intercept for the runaway try, you had used that word up. Uh, now, did you also realise that uh, you talked over the uh, start of all the line-out throw-ins in the second half, uh, so there's nowhere for the editor to get in and make a clean edit for the highlights package that's going out, uh, even as we speak? He had all this detail, this absolute detail of assessing and dissecting my commentary that no disrespect, no one had ever done to that level before. And I saw it when he talked about his cricket. 
And uh, then he told me the story about making the century in the garage in Queenstown, making the century <laughs> at Lords. Uh, and then I came to realize after knowing him for a couple of years, how certain people in the cricketing world didn't like him because they couldn't cope with the detail he went in as mm. a captain in assessing their performance as a batsman. Because I guess he would say to someone, now look, when you're batting and the spinner is bowling over the wicket, you shouldn't be taking the ball, but you should be doing this and all of that detail of understanding the batting technique. He then took to assessing my uh, commentary style. And uh, I think I became a better commentator in the last four or five years of my life because at last somebody was assessing uh, how I did it. Because in the first or in the middle, shall we say, years of my commentary, uh, no, nobody did. Wow. So um, he would become, so I was, I, we became very good friends because we had a love of attachment and talking about sports and cricket and, and other things as well. So I'm very sad when he passed away. Mm. I was very sad indeed, and as many people around the country were, but not everybody understood Martin Crowe. But I will say, and say it again here with you today, Pat, that he was the best rugby producer I ever had. So I, I'm sure that's not going to be one that many people would uh, have on the, you know, Martin Crowe's CV, that of all the accomplishments he did in cricket, um, that he was a fantastic rugby producer as well. Hey, I was just thinking as you were talking about you're on the wrong channel, when Sky TV back in the day got the rights to the rugby, early 90s, something like that, um, was there ever a... Were you ever, mid to late 90s, yeah. Mid yeah. to late 90s. Were you ever approached? Did they try and poach you? Did they, did, was there ever any talk of you going to Sky Sport and continuing on your commentary? Yes. In fact, I went probably that close to, to going, to, to join Sky. Um, in 1999, they were getting the, I think it was 1999, they were getting the coverage rights full time and they were shutting TVNZ out of it altogether. And uh, I went to Walkland and had a nice uh, lunch and was offered the position of being one of the commentary teams at, uh, at Sky. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll think, think about it. Uh, I also knew that TV in New Zealand had the rights to the Sydney Olympic Games in 2000, uh, the All Black Tours overseas, mm -hmm. not the ones at home, the All Black Tours overseas for the next two or three seasons, and the Rugby World Cup in 2003. Um, and I think also the, World, the Olympic Games in 2004. So there were very good reasons for me to stay at TVNZ. It just meant the gaps between doing major sports were, were going to be long. So um, I kind of said to Sky, yes, um, I'm, I think I'm going to join because I understand that you'll be doing the rugby Saturday by Saturday by Saturday into the future. But I also knew that I loved going to the Olympic Games uh, and the Commonwealth Games is also in that mix too, by the way, and those overseas tours. Uh, was were uh, on offer for the TV New Zealand as well. So they sent me an air ticket to fly to Auckland. Sky sent me an air ticket to fly to Auckland to take part in the planning for the new season. 
And on the that was on Monday morning. And on Sunday night, I sat down with my wife and we had a conversation and a discussion. And on Monday morning, uh, they had booked a taxi to take me to the airport. And I rang the Auckland uh, Sky office and I said to the producer, uh, we've had a chat here at this end and I'm not coming. I'm staying with TVNZ. And so uh, that was it. So it was that close to going. And um, I stayed and I have no regrets because I did go on the uh, tours to the Olympic Games, the Rugby World Cup in 2003 in Australia. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, on an all back tour to Scotland and then over to Argentina. I joined the Sevens World Series. Uh, I went to the Commonwealth Games and then the Olympics in 2004 in in uh, Athens and then in 2008 in Beijing and so on and so on. I had many, many highlights, so I can't have any regrets. Um, but when the rugby was played Saturday after Saturday after Saturday on Sky, I, I wasn't in the mix and I had to say to myself, you made the call, Keith. Yeah. Um, and um, so that was it. But, um, yeah, I was very close to going. Um, you've brought up the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. Uh, I, am, I, am I correct in saying you've done 10 of each, 10 Olympics, 10 Commonwealth Games? It's, uh, it's staggering, to yeah. the good fortune uh, I've had. I know that Peter Montgomery did 10 uh, Summer Olympic Games and Brendan Telfer did 10 Summer Olympic Games. Um, we're, uh, shall we say, senior broadcasters now. <laughs> we're available if the phone rings. But uh, I don't expect it to do any more because I'm out of the game now. But um, how lucky has that been? Just to, to be able to say uh, uh, 10 Summer Olympic Games. I think the most for a competitor is, might be um, Paul McDonald or um, the great show jumper um, uh, f- who did five. Well, Mark Todd, is that the show jumper we're thinking of? He must be up there. You're quite right. I think they did five, but then I might not be absolutely correct there, but I did 10, and Telford did 10, and Montgomery 10. So we were uh, incredibly. But I I can add on the 10 Commonwealth Games as well. So uh, just wonderful good fortune. What I I hear you saying, Keith, is you're at least twice as good as Mark Todd. That's what I interpret from what you've just said. No, 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 I once <laughs> I went to the races once, maybe twice. Um, I, don't, I don't know which end of the horse works. <laughs> so he, Mark can he can Mark can have that. Um, he can have all that to <laughs> to himself. Hey, um, I want to talk a little bit about this as we go through uh, to do with various sports and that. But now that we're talking about the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games, uh, some of the greatest you ever saw. Uh, did, did you ever do any uh, Olympics with Usain Bolt? Did you see him run? Like like sitting in those uh, events, and I guess it's hard to compare a kayaker with a you know a sailboarder with a sprinter with a shot putter. But um, from looking in there, who were some of the greats that you that you saw as you were experiencing those you know those those games? Uh, well, at Rio in 2016, which will be the last one I did, um, uh, Usain Bolt won the hundred meters there. But I was sitting there in the st- in the stadium. And my job that day was to do the field events. And, uh, and of course, often the field events is a separate telecast. So you commentate through the running of great uh, athletics running races 
uh, as they're going on. You're actually commentating on the triple jump or the pole vault or something, and you have to concentrate totally on that event, and you can't actually look away to see what's happening in the 800 metres. But in the Rio 100 metres final, uh, they knew how to run and stage an event, so they stopped the field events. Yeah. And so Uh the the whole of the stadium zoomed in on the pos- possibilities of the uh, 100 metres final. Well, I, so- I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking if, uh, I was going to say if I was in the high jump, I mean, for, anything could be further from the truth. But if I was on the field as a competitor, I'd want to stop if Usain Bolt was running just to look over there for 9.8 seconds to see if he'd won. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. And uh, and uh, that's exactly what happened. So, I, in fact, I, I picked up my cell phone and I took a, a video of the race, which is against the rules of the rights holders who pay hundreds of millions of dollars. But to hell with it. I, I shot the video of the 100 metres, my version of it. Um, but then we went back to the field events, uh, and I can't quite recall if it was on the same day. It may well have been, might not have been. But um, the New Zealander, she won the bronze medal in the pole vault, and um, and I was the commentator. So I, there was... Um, I was that was a, a thrill as well you know, to to do that. She came out of. I did. I did some, I had some fantastic experiences at the uh, at the Olympic Games. I commentated John Walker's race uh, when he won the gold medal. Wow! And in, in Montreal in 1976, and I really really enjoyed it because a he he um, he won the won the race gold medal for New Zealand. But I tell you what I really love, Pat, is that the other broadcasters came along as we stood up at the end of the commentary and patted me on the back and said, "Well done, Kiwi. Good on you, Kiwi. Well done, New Zealand. What a great!" And I thought, "Yeah, I, was, I sort of stood up another six inches tall because I was a Kiwi and he'd done it on the track for us, and we were recognised as being part of his victory." And I, and I enjoyed, enjoyed it. And I thought, "I wonder if I'll ever do." any more New Zealand gold medals into the future. And guess what? 32 years later, I did. I only commentated two New Zealand gold medals at the uh, Olympic Games, and that was Valerie Adams in Beijing in 2008. So my record, not great for gold medals at the Olympic Games. Well, you know, it probably depends on what per capita we've won as gold medals. Um, so, I mean, to do any is more than, more than most... More than most. Oh, I, I, I have don't a... Get, I don't gonna, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Bloody Montgomery, he, he come with that all those yachting oh, goals. of course. And <laughs> bloody Telford was doing canoeing and all that. They're way ahead of me. <laughs> it's, uh, I think that sounds cool. I was just thinking as you were talking, and I'm going to reference golf again, unfortunately, um, that what? when you highlight what you've been associated with when other people are doing it, I, I haven't played in a golf tournament for 15 years, maybe 20 um, but the last two golf tournaments I played in, someone in my group of four got a hole in one, two in a row. Like So I played one, and then six months later I played another. And I, for a long time, was saying that people should be paying me to come and be in there for in a golf tournament because I'm obviously the lucky charm for someone else in the group getting a hole in one. So it can happen two, two tournaments in a row. But no one no one wanted to pay that one off, Keith. So, oh well. Now, as a, as a golf commentator, I got a couple of stories. I... Um... Uh, made a film once with uh, a broadcasting colleague of mine who's still going strong, uh, Doc Williams. Uh, we went to um, we went to Rotorua one time. We made a film with uh, Sam Sneed, 
the great Sam Sneed came out from the from the states, and uh, we actually went to dinner with him the night before, uh, and that was fantastic. I think Sam had been married about seven times, <laughs> and he arrived with this woman uh, for dinner, and I thought, oh, well, gee, this is his wife, um, um, but it wasn't. It was his girlfriend. So he was a rather colourful character, but I really enjoyed um, uh, Sam uh, Sneed and a couple of other big. Um, I played around the golf once with Kel Nagel. Uh, uh, my golf was very, very bad, by the way. And uh, it was just, it was at a sort of a pro-am thing in Auckland one time. And uh, my golf was so bad, uh, I picked up with about four holes to play <laughs> and said, Mr. Nagel, can I walk in with you? Just have a chat. He said, sure, son. So I walked in four holes with, meant, that meant with a, that's about an, an hour and a bit walking with with Kel Nagel, and I really enjoyed the conversation with him. So I had this, uh, lovely things like that have happened to me all over the place, mate. I remember uh, probably late eighties, maybe into the early nineties. There seemed to be a group of All Blacks that would have been really fun to tour with. Not to not to belittle any other All Blacks, but I remember the Bernie McCarthy, John Kerwin, that group of guys, and they'd come away and then make. Um, videos like video productions and sell them of the behind the scenes of the last tour to the Northern Hemisphere. Was that for a commentator? And obviously, you're kind of traveling alongside, sort of with the team, same hotels. Was that a particularly fun era to be traveling the world with, you know, I'm not, I guess, not professional athletes, let's just say with the All Blacks? When I look back now, I my best times traveling with the with the All Blacks uh, uh, was when I was younger, when I was a younger reporter. Um, because the, the, the I often say uh, the reporters get older, but the All Blacks always stay the same age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when I first went away uh, with an All Black team out offshore, it was to Australia in 1974. And I remember I got there the night before the game against New South Wales, which was played in a terrible, terrible day. There was mud and slush at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And afterwards, somebody said to me, come and have a drink in the dressing room with the team. And I thought, gee, this is, um, this is nice. I didn't think this happened on All Black Tours. So I went in the dressing room. Uh, Andy Leslie was the captain of the All Blacks, and he was from Wellington. So I knew Andy, and he invited me in. And there were all the All Blacks sitting around covered in mud and slush. And they raised a, a glass and sang happy birthday to Ian Kirkpatrick. And... What struck me then as we sang happy birthday to uh, Ian Kirkpatrick was that he was younger, that, that I was younger than him. So I was really young as a, as a commentator. So we had a lot of good time with the All Blacks uh, in those days. Um, in South Africa in 1976 on that controversial tour, uh, some of the guys would say, and the team would say, at the usual time in the bar tonight, Keith? And I'd say, <laughs> oh, yeah, what? Six o'clock, so we'd all meet. The media would meet with the All Blacks for a drink. Uh, it was a bit of smoking in those days. I I never smoked in my life, but uh, I remember three or four of the All Blacks smoked cigarettes. So we'd have a beer and a, a cigarette, and yarn about the you know what's happening with the rugby and and um, and the, the team and and the, the families and what's your family, Keith, and all this sort of stuff. And it was great. By the time uh, the good, the bad, and the rugby filming came along, uh, I was then 25 years older, and the reporters 
there were new reporters then who were the, the young guys. And one of them was Rick Salizzo. And Rick <laughs> right. was in the newsroom in Auckland. Yeah. And he was a young guy and he had good ideas. And he made uh, those those um, those uh, films, Good, Bad and the Rugby, and the, the other ones as well. And he was very close to the All Blacks, as I had been in the, in the generation when I was young reporter. And see, he, he got ac- he got access inside the camp, confidence in the camp. He'd gone to school with with Kerwin uh, in in Auckland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Bernie McCahill, Everton Marist Club in Auckland. So he got access, and therefore the films he made were fun. They were funny, and they were huge bestsellers in the world of VHS when it came in, and was different from the uh, rugby coverage, which which I was doing as a as a commentator. So actually, in fact, I didn't have much to do with those films, but I think it was a reflection of the of my old adage: um, the the All Blacks stay the same age, and the reporters get older. Rick was a young guy with them at that at that time. I actually appeared in one of them once, um, which is a bit of a long story, but I'll keep it short. Uh, my wife was knitting a pullover for me to wear. Um, on the tour to Britain, which is cold place. And she was knitting this lovely uh, cable stitch down the front, I remember. Uh, and she's had to say to me with about three days to go before I left for the long tour, uh, I'm not going to get this finished. I said, well, don't worry about it. Um, it's okay. She said, oh, it's, I'm just so disappointed. I'd love to, to know that you were wearing this on the tour to keep warm. I said, well, I'll tell you what, my mate Gary Ward is coming on a supporters tour uh, two and a half weeks into the tour. Why don't you t- uh, knit for another couple of weeks and give it to Gary and he'll bring it over. <sighs> Great. So Anne carried on knitting and I flew off on the All Blacks tour. When we got to about game five in, in Cardiff, uh, there was a knock on the door in the hotel and there was a man standing with a big package. Oh, Mr. Quinn, this has just been delivered to you. Uh, would you, it's a pack, and I opened it up, and it, there was this fantastic pullover, beautiful, finished, neck was, I tried it on, stood in front of the mirror, oh, <laughs> wonderful, uh, I rang home, uh, I said to my wife, I said, Ed, hey, darling, uh, hey, pal, I always call it pal, hey, I said, pal, this pullover's arrived, it's fantastic, Gary must have left it at the reception desk, it's beautiful. She said, oh, what, does it fit around the neck? And I said, yeah, it fits around the neck. What about the length of the arms? Oh, perfect. What about underneath the arms? If I knitted that correctly, in your absence, did I get that right? Yes. Length of the, yes. I said, I'll tell you what, darling, I'm doing the preview for the news coverage of the Welsh Test Match tomorrow. I'll wear it when I do the, the preview. Uh so I went out to the ground to be the guy that holds the microphone there and say, and so the All Blacks looking forward to the game against Wales tomorrow. I'm Keith Quinn in Cardiff. And as I said that, I remember the All Blacks came around the corner, went all rushing through my appearance. And so we had to do take two, right? So the Cardigan got on the news coverage of me saying, it's going to be a great game tomorrow, <laughs> Keith Quinn in Cardiff. Um, went, back room, went back to the hotel room. Next morning, there was an envelope under the door. I opened the envelope. I thought, "What's this?" Opened it, and it was an envelope, a, a fax from New Zealand on a TVNZ letterhead. Dear Keith, 
what's your preview of the test last night? Under no circumstances are you to wear that pullover again on TV. Signed, <laughs> so and so and so, and so uh, head of uh, production, sports department, New Zealand, Auckland. So I didn't care. <laughs> I, I got the, the, my wife had seen how good her uh, pullover looked, even though it was uh, not approved of by the bosses. <laughs> um, Rick Salito obviously then went on to do some rather good things. For people who don't know, yeah. man, man Behind Sports Cafe and currently Man Behind uh, Crowd Goes Well on Prime TV, which is a, a nightly show. So, yeah, he's yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. stayed in that vein. Um, I, I was interested when you were talking about the age of the All Blacks. I use that as a reference point for me getting older. Like, I realised yeah. I was getting a bit older, and it was Jonah, actually, when all blacks were younger than me. And then I realised yeah. I was far older when the whole team was younger than me. And it's actually a reference point to, I don't know if many blokes or people in New Zealand do it, but as a rugby fan, when you realise you're older than all of the All Blacks. Even the captains who are, you know, seen as veterans, it certainly is a wake-up wake moment, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the old expression is that you know getting old when the policemen look old or something. But uh, that's exactly right. When I would go to get some interviews with the All Blacks quite late in my time, and they would arrive and call me Mr Quinn. Uh, and as I said with you at the start here, at, uh, I would always have to say, no, 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 please, my name is Keith. Uh, and they, uh, but you realise that, of course, that the, the age difference in the end was if an All Black is 21 and I was 51, that's 30 years. And if the All Blacks uh, I was interviewing was uh, 21 and I was 61, that's 40 years. And yeah. that's kind of what happened in, in the span of uh, my uh, interviewing time with the with the All Blacks. But you're right about Jonah. He was such a lovely man. Uh, uh, and uh, I saw him um, right from the start, 19 years of age, in those games against France in um, in 1994, right through to flying home from uh, the Hong Kong Sevens in uh, the year that, uh, just months before he passed away, and seeing him deal with the the... The, the sheer adulation of the fans right through his career and never bat an eyelid in anger. Uh, we were in a jumbo jet flying back from the Hong Kong Sevens once and he, in the middle of the flight home to Auckland, I woke up in the middle of the night as you do and stood up just to stretch my legs and two or three rows in front of me, I noticed this massive frame of Joe Nolomu <laughs> standing up to stretch himself and then so I went down and we had a bit of a whispered chat in the in the aisle of a jumbo jet uh, in the dark. And even then, uh, a lady tiptoed down the aisle and said, uh, hello, Jonah, can I have a picture with you, please, in the middle of the night? And Jonah never batted an eyelid. So somewhere there's a photograph of um, of Jonah with this, uh, with this woman. He, even even when in the middle of his sleep, uh, he, there were, he was giving himself up to people to to be kind and a gentle soul that he was you know it's it was obvious that the he was like I, mean, I think it's pretty fair to say the world's first rugby superstar and yeah. i had a couple of not experiences with him but experiences watching from the out well well from the outside to to know this my back to my dad my dad's got a photo of him with jonah um and he used to take it with him to fiji as the story goes and tell the local Fijians that this was this was his son, 
and that used to get him all sorts of uh, inferences that he was claiming that Jonah was his son. And the other one was at the, one of the last Rugby World Cups when they did a really, I'll just put it on the background, they did a really interesting uh, Heineken advert where Jonah was in a, um, in a machine signing balls and then all of a sudden, the, the crowd didn't yeah. know he was in there. He gets out of the machine, and another star gets in, and the whole crowd goes ballistic. English crowd at the Rugby World Cup, seeing as Jonah goes ballistic, you just kind of look at him and go, "Yeah, that's the the world knew him. The rugby world knows him and loves him as the as the world's first superstar." So frightfully sad when he passed away. When he uh, when he went to the Rugby World Cup in London in 2015, on that sort of. Uh, I think he was part of the Heineken sponsorship. Uh, on the day of the final, I was sitting up in the grandstand. I wasn't working. I was just watching. Uh, and um, he came out in a beautiful, uh, uh, he was always impeccably dressed, uh, almost ahead of fashion. And um, along the sideline were um, BBC, uh, ABC Australia, um, other stations and 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 right up to the Sky TVs on the, uh, from New Zealand on the end. And Jonah went, walked up to the, speak to the Sky people from New Zealand, previewing the game, and people in the grandstand applauded him all the way up. Wow. And uh, so he did the interview, and I could see him being interviewed. And then he jogged to the next interview. And as he <laughs> jogged, the crowd burst into applause again. And as he then jogged to the next one, they clapped him again. When he got to the end of maybe his fourth or fifth interview, uh, the applause was really warm and he disappeared out of sight to go up and find his seat to watch the final. He was always in demand, always gracious. And also that day, I remember, at the end, he waved to the crowd. Now, I think everybody felt that he was waving to them individually. And uh, I think I took some photos of that in my fumbling manner again on my cell phone. Uh, and that, I think, was the last time I might have seen him. Oh, the, maybe the one on the plane back from... Hong Kong the following year was um, was the last time, but getting towards the end of my time with Jonah, and he was such a lovely guy. Um, from watching rugby in particular, because I guess even though you know very well respected, you know fifteen plus books you've written and and the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, probably be fair to say that most people in New Zealand would um, associate you with the rugby commentary. Uh, so looking at the at the rugby that you've watched over your era as a commentator and as a spectator. And I'm going to push you on this because I did it with Grant Fox and with a couple of other All Blacks as well. Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest you've seen? Um, the greatest, I can't break it down, really, between Colin Meads and Jonah. Um, because both of those guys changed the way the game was played. When I first uh, was watching rugby uh, as a kid, uh, we lived in the King Country, as I've told you. We came to Wellington, and I'd go to Athletic Park. We had a house built just behind Athletic. Well, no, it was bought for us just behind Athletic Park. We'd go there. In those days, forwards trudged. Now, old, old blokes will possibly disagree with me, but they trudged from set play to set play. They didn't do much. Okay, there's a scrum over here. Let's trudge over to there. And if there's going to be... Uh, um, uh, line out over here, we'll trudge over here. There was dribbling the ball with their feet. That was a, something that happened. And along came this skinny guy from the King Country, which is my birthplace, Tiggawiddy, but I was now living in Wellington, Colin Meads. And he wasn't like a trudger. 
He was a tall, slim man with uh, long arms, big farmer's hands. He could grab the ball in one hand and he could run. And he could run and he could sidestep and he could long strides down the field. I can see him now in my mind's eye. I was so proud to be a Tiguiti man, a King Country man, just like Pine Tree Meads. And so I used to tell people I knew him, but I didn't. But um, so, but he, everybody soon, every team soon wanted to have uh, a Colin Meads in their forward pack. And then many, many years in advance of that, uh, came along a guy called Jonah Lomu. Now, in those advanced years, big men still went to the forwards and little guys, speedy guys, went to the backs. Suddenly, here was this huge man uh, who was very athletic and very fast and a, a genius in the all-black uh, selectors. They put him in the schoolboys team, was a lock forward, a number eight forward. But then Laurie Maines and Earl Curtin and those guys said, Jonah, have a go on the wing. And so out he went to the wing and suddenly the world of rugby changed because big men who were big and athletic could be backs. And Jonah was the first example of that. So he changed the way, the opportunities for big men who were athletic to, to be involved uh, in rugby. And now if you look at a game on every Saturday uh, from around the world, you'll see huge men playing on the, on the wing. And that started because of Loma. So I always say... Yes, McCaw was a great player. Uh, yes, so-and-so from England was a great player. So-and-so from South Africa, great men I've seen play. But the two guys who changed the game in my time of watching were Meads and Lomu. It's interesting that you 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 use the word big, 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 and then you said huge at the end. And I think that's what Jonah, Jonah was. Because when I was talking to Grant Fox about this as well, uh, his 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 he was Richie was his greatest he's ever seen, uh, but he started talking about the first big winger being J.K., and then we talked about Inga Tuigamala, and they were and Inga was 110 kilos, but he was short. Jonah was the first at 120. He's six foot five, was that right? Was he six five? Yeah, something, yeah, something, something like. Yeah. He was like the the colossus of a man. He wasn't just big. Yeah. He was he he was a giant. And now you look yeah, at yeah. guys like it's actually quite interesting. I remember the first time I saw Geordie Barrett play. Um, six foot five, you know, not not the same um, weight or girth, but no, no. six foot five. So it's Scott. Uh, he's the same height as his lock brother. First time I saw yeah. him playing for Wellington, I'd never seen him play before, but I'd seen Geordie. I uh, sorry, I'd seen Bowden Barrett play, and I went, "That guy runs just like Bowden Barrett." I wonder if they're related. They've got a very straight up, very kind of like Andrew Blowers back in the day. They run very straight with a very straight yes. back, and. So those, because like twenty years ago, if you're six foot five and you're at high school, then as you say, you put into the you put into the forwards, no matter not what. And now yeah. he's yeah. he's a fullback winger, and that's that's where he's yeah. he's going to stay. So, yeah, that's interesting because the 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 reason you put them in there is because how they changed the sport. Um, yeah. yeah. So because because Richie didn't change the sport, he was just but uh, allegedly potentially the best ever at what he did. But it was That's a continuation. Right. That, puts him, that puts Richie, a great player, a great All Black, great captain, but didn't quite change the way the game was played. So he, he is just underneath the line yep. of people yep. like uh, like Lamu and Meads were. And that's. But as I always say, uh, it's only one man's opinion. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that uh, Michael Jones was someone who changed that position oh, slightly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again. 
very athletic, very fast, very skillful. I mean, uh, your father would would have been there watching when they passed him the ball at Eden Park one day playing for Auckland, and he caught it against his hip, against his, almost around on his buttocks. And Michael, as he ran, never stopped the speed of his stride and rolled the ball around his hip from his from a catch against his buttocks, rolled around and then put his other hand on it and ran upfield and scored a try. I mean, he was such a skillful player, but a beautiful guy and a beautiful person too. So I think Dad's favourite player, and I remember when Dad turned 60, I had a connection to, and talking about nice guys, I had a connection to Michael and... Um, kind of connected him through official channels, but eventually Michael said that I could just go to his place and meet him, and he signed some stuff for Dad and gave him an Auckland training jersey, and that was my my 60th birthday present for Dad, was stuff signed and given by Michael Jones. So, yeah, loveliest man the other in the world. One, the, other one I, the other one I should really mention, really in the echelon of those really great guys, is, is Christian Cullen, because he brought a dimension to the game where he was slim, and fast and out the back, but also very uh, elusive. Uh, when he ran, he could sidestep, but he could also swerve. And uh, then he just brought a dimension to the game, which was uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, you're now asking me to take it out to the top five and <laughs> if we we'll be at the top 10 and top 20 and so on. Well, I'll tell, no, but, let, me, uh, let, me, let me tell you something. This is what I do with players and it's a bit different with a, with a commentator is I normally say to them, who's the greatest of all time? And then I say, who's the greatest you've played against? Because it might not be the same person, and then I say, and because so for, for for Foxy, greatest of all times was McCaw. Greatest he played against was Jones, and I said, who's the player you like watching most of all? And the example I gave to give to rugby players is like Jesse Ryder in cricket is probably my favourite cricket player to watch. Because you'd never know whether it was going to be 100 off 30 balls or, you know, zero off four balls out to a ridiculous shot. It, there was an excitement to it. And for me, my answer to when I talk to All Blacks or former All Blacks is Christian Cullen is always the person I love to watch most of all. He yeah. was the person that, that yeah, you watch him. I, I can still remember the very first game he played in against Samoa, the very first tackle he, he got hit in was the, the world's most fearsome, solid, potentially illegal hit from Samoa. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's this guy's career over. He just popped up and kept going. you know. But I can remember the very first tackle he was tackled yeah. in. It was, un- uh, yeah. And that was just kind of the start of his career, of what he went on to do. When I talk about uh, favourite cricketers, when I was a kid, I used to love going to the Basin Reserve in Wellington and watch John Reed. And so he had his memorial service last uh, Friday. And uh, I was there for every ball, and every strike he hit when he made 296. Wow. Uh, one day. Um, and uh, 15 sixes and dozens of boundary fours. And I got to know uh, John a bit one time. And I said to him, um, we were going to do a function. I was going to be the MC and John was the guest speaker. And crossing the road to get into the function, I said to him, hey, that day you made 296, um, uh, John. You didn't hit Don Clark, the rugby player, for six. He was playing for Northern Districts. You didn't hit him for six. He said, I bloody did. <laughs> and so I was he, he said, he bowled me a short one and I hit him into the grandstand. So I was putting him in place then. But he was fantastic to watch because he could bat, he could bowl, he could wicket keep, he could throw the ball so far and fast, and he was so strong. 
uh, and so I remember we used to leave home up the hills above the base reserve with my brothers and cycle faster down the hill to get there for the start of play in case uh, a couple of wickets fell and J.R. Reed was coming out to bat and we weren't going to be there to see every ball or everything he did in the game because he was so, so good at every aspect of cricket. Hey, Keith, um, it's been amazing talking to you. Uh, we've, we've been going for an hour. This is like a little TARDIS and it just flies by. But I thought before we go, if it's okay with you, the the kind of current sport that we're watching around the world is uh, political. <laughs> it's like the politics of the world at the moment is sort of a sport. And we talked about it before we broadcast, and you said you're, you're kind of kind of getting into or keeping up with the political world at the moment. I, I know it's not sort of – in fact, there's probably some people now rolling their eyes watching this going, oh, why are we talking about politics? This is a break from politics. But have you been keeping an eye on things around New Zealand and the world? And, and have you got any thoughts about what's happening in the world of politics at the moment? Yeah, in the world of politics, I'm very, very interested in the, in the world of American politics. I mean, I diligently watch it each uh, day and, and have done so for months and months, in fact, years now. Uh, I must say I watch it on CNN rather than Fox News, so that possibly tells you a bit about my leanings. Uh, and in recent days when they're talking about the American uh, political situation, uh, Donald, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I am eternally grateful uh, that I live in New Zealand it's because we have a situation politically in New Zealand where, yes, there were differences at the at the election recently between the um, two parties and what who you voted for was your own choice. But I'm so glad that we live here uh, rather than there. Uh, and that even in the recent American politics, everything that was said in the weeks leading up to with the with the venom and the bile that was said by by people perhaps more on one side than on the other again makes me grateful more than ever to be living here and uh, when I think about our prime minister uh, and the leadership in the United States again uh, I'm um, eternally grateful I live here I don't want to give away too many political secrets here in our family mate but except to tell you that on my mother's side, when they came to New Zealand in the 1920s from Scotland, they lived in Blackball, where my um, the Quins were involved in the um, management of the mines, and Big Sir was the strike breaker. The, the Clark family, they came from um, Les Mahago in Scotland, and there was... Um, granddad and granny and the whole swag of kids. Uh, and finally, from one side, the Quinns and one of the uh, the Scottish family, the Canadian family, one of them met and they fell in love and they had to get approval to be married. Uh, and they finally did and produced these wonderful five boys, of which I'm one of them. Uh, and a wee hint about my political leanings might be the fact that my mother's maiden name was Helen Clark. <laughs> there you go. It's like, so it's your mother. Not giving away any more secrets. It's, it's, it's your mother and it's a former uh, goalkeeper for the New Zealand field hockey team. Remember that there was a there was a goalkeeper called Helen Clark as well? And it was... Helen, there was too. Helen Clark, there was too. You're yeah. exactly right. And yeah. it was the Prime Minister. And I've, met, I've met Helen Clark uh, a number of times. Not a lot, but she's such a lovely person too, so... 
Yeah, there you go. Well, the good news for most of the sane world is that it appears that Biden only needs one more, um, one more state to take the presidency, and Trump needs about four more. And at the moment, uh, Biden is leading in one more of those states, and potentially will win two more. So I think at the moment it's prob. I don't know what the odds would be technically, but it's probably. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but ill-informed, but looking at it, an eighty percent chance that Biden will be the be the president, probably by the end of tomorrow or the next day, depending on these votes. So we shall see. Well, if that happens, I think that'll be so good for the world. And but it might be difficult for him to get any major change done through domestic issues because the Senate and the House will be so close. However, it means it will means that the United States will be able to. Uh, maybe re-enter um, discussions, re-positive attitude to climate change and world um, uh, affairs, uh, and that will be a good thing because the distance that uh, Trump has taken those uh, issues from keeping the Uni- United States out of those has been really bad in the last four years, I think. And uh, that uh, if there's a new president, that, that he'll close those gaps and get the world back on there, there was a recent um film i saw on netflix it's another one of our hobbies by the way uh as um the one by david attenborough about the future of the planet it's not that difficult to get us back on track to save the horrors that some people tell us uh lie ahead if we don't pay attention to climate change he's made a, a documentary on on uh, on the netflix which is really positive and it's and he's saying in an essence this is his legacy program that if you attend to these small matters we can um, get the world back on track so if there's a change in the united states to help that along then that there is suddenly is a more positive attitude uh, coming uh, for us all. Now, that's the first time you've ever heard me speak about these serious matters, mate, because usually <laughs> my career has all been all about scrums and lineouts and uh, referees and let's ring up your old man to get the <laughs> who does put the ball into a scrum when it's a knock-on by the defending team in goal and all of that complicated stuff. I want to just tell you one more thing, Pat. Here you go. We are, we are my brothers and I, my mother was a widow from the age of 31, she raised five boys, no girls. Five boys there were. Uh, George is Dr. George, Emeritus Dr. George Quinn in Canberra, Head of Asian Language Studies. Uh, he's published um, lots of books and papers, uh, very serious academic studies. I've written, uh, they're on the shelf here, 20 books about rugby and sports. Uh, my latest one is called Give Him the Axe, the History of the Wellington Football Club, my club for life. Uh, and I'm going to plug my brother's book, Yeah, uh, A Life of Extreme, Max Quinn of Dunedin. I hope you're proud of my brother in Dunedin. Uh, the third of the Quinn brothers to be published out of five. One of my brothers passed away uh, and with uh, cancer which was very sad for us and very sad for him, obviously, uh, and which leaves only one brother unpublished, and that's Harry Quinn Jr., who I reckon could write a damn good uh, book about his life as a detective in Wellington 
fighting the, some of the tough murders and crime down here. So via your public um, domain, can I say, come on, Harry Jr., get on with it. <laughs> and let's do this if you want to push it. Let's push it properly. Oh, uh, Exile, very good. Well, Exile, well done. Exile Publishing, uh, if you want to look it up. Yeah. Uh, A Life of Extremes, forty nine ninety nine. You can purchase it. Uh, Max Quinn, there is the book right there. Look at the, look at the ice on his face from his... Minus fifty degrees. He was filming, and I think it was that day. It's just, it's just amazing. And uh, not many people know about Max, but after that book, I think a, uh, a lot of them will. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, there you go. So there's, uh, there's the book, and that's now out there. And Keith, thank you so much for for joining with us today. It's been a, it's been a, a lot of fun. And uh, I mean, I don't need to say this, and people don't need to know this, but you know, I approached you to do something with Rugby World Cup last one that just went and you were like, I'm taking a break, I want to just watch it but thank you for uh, even you know, thinking about what we were trying to do then and this has been a whole lot of fun and you know, the, the stories you've got and the stories you tell, especially about the sporting uh, things you've seen and witnessed in the world I think everybody wants to hear and hear more of so I really appreciate that you gave us some time to have a bit of a chat today Thank you, Pat. I've really enjoyed it and uh, a lot of new things I haven't talked about before. So uh, that's been fun from this end as well. All right, team, done and dusted. Uh, Keith Quinn there for you. Uh, yeah, that was great. Thank you, Keith, for coming in. We really do appreciate that. And what a great group of stories to tell. I remember, we didn't tell it in this one, but if I can retell one of Keith's stories, I talked in the podcast about him being at Mangafai Golf Course and doing being like the speaker on the opening of the new golf uh, house. What do you call it? Club rooms. And he told a story about the Wetton brothers going to uh, England in the old... 24-hour flights and what would happen a lot of the times in those planes especially if I guess you're in first class is the food would constantly come food constantly more next meal next meal next meal and uh, I don't know whether it was Gary or AJ Wheaton as they were on tour there ended up getting uh, one of the meals and pretty much tipped the whole meal into a sick bag because they'd had enough food didn't want any more then he pressed his buzzer and he called the uh, stewardess air hostess, whatever is the correct term, to come uh, to him. And he went, oh, excuse me, so I think I've got a bit of... And he pretended to throw up into the bag. And then he looked into the bag and started picking the food out and eating it. To which I think, as the story goes, made the air hostess then gag. So all sorts of stories from Keith. I'm sure we could have gone for several more hours with some of his amazing stories. And it was great fun catching up with him. Hey, uh, coming up in the next podcast, listening out for New Zealand's chief censor, David Shanks. The person who was sort of responsible for telling us Uh, how harmful or not content is books movies maybe television maybe not do don't do television digital content Um, and I kind of decided that this is a person who sort of impacts our daily life but we as a society don't really know exactly what he does so let's have a chat with him. So we did. So the next podcast is New Zealand's Chief Censor, David Shanks, which should be amazing as well. Um, other than that, head to the Facebook page. Just look up DOCNZ on Facebook. Easy, you can contact us through there as well. Head to our website, www.thedoc.nz. Stay safe out there, especially if you're not in New Zealand, the Shangri-La that is New Zealand, if you're still having to be extra careful, as we all are, not that we're not being careful in New Zealand, but if you're being extra careful, thanks to COVID, be safe wherever you are. Hug a loved one, especially if they're in the same bubble as you, if you're international. Uh, Stay safe, wash your hands, watch something on telly that makes you laugh. Thanks for joining us. Hooroo.